thank you for tuning in to the Inside Look podcast. And today we have a special guest, Jim Warner Wallace. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, glad to be with you. Yeah. So I like to start off when we have guests is to share a little bit about themselves and to share a little bit about their story. And for you, how you're a former homicide detective and about how first 35 years you were an atheist and now you're a Christian apologist. So if you could share with us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I, I never thought that uh, that would really, really ever amount to much other than solving the cases that I was assigned. And so I, you know, I, I kind of followed in my dad's footsteps. He was somebody who worked this profession for about 28 years. And um, growing up, I, I thought it was noble. I, I, I thought it was a good, he told me about his cases occasionally. Some of them were pretty harrowing. Um, and I thought I wasn't going to follow in his footsteps originally. I, I got a degree in, in uh, architecture, a degree in design, came in late. I was uh, about 27 when I finally joined. And uh, I got assigned eventually to robbery homicide. And after doing a number of other assignments, I worked gangs for a couple of years. I worked undercover for a couple of years. And then I ended up in robbery homicide and just thought, well, you just handle the cases that are assigned to you. Most of that time, I was not a Christian. Uh, I didn't really grow up around other believers. Uh, but my wife had an interest in the things of God and eventually said, hey, should we raise our kids with some kind of a belief system? And that's really the thing that kind of got us back into a church setting. And I was just happy to go as an unbeliever. Uh, but as I sat there, uh, I realized that this pastor and his pitch about Jesus would always describe Jesus as super smart. And I was interested in what the smart Jesus had to say. So I bought a Bible and eventually applied the same techniques we use to determine if a witness is reliable to the Gospels. And that's how I became a believer. And so when you're in church and you, you were an atheist when you visited church for the first time, right? You were. Right. So um, when you're doing that, what really made you spark that interest? Like what caused you to like, wow, let me use these skills mm -hmm. I have to determine if the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how are you saying, is true? Well, I was always interested in a smart ancients, ancient wisdom. Mm -hmm. So when I was a kid, you know, um, there's a book called The Prophet that was very popular in the 70s, kind of this ancient set of collections, or this allegedly ancient set of collections of, of wisdom statements. When I was in high school, I had a professor, a, a teacher, and sociology who was a member of the Baha'i faith. And he introduced me to the writings of Baha'u'llah. I never accepted these as anything other than the um, human statements of wise people. Look, if, if there's uh, wisdom that transcends the ages, um, I think the humans, if humans have access to it, then why wouldn't you be willing to do this fortune cookie search for wisdom? And that was really what I saw Jesus as. I mean, this pastor is pitching this as another set of ancient wise sayings. I had no idea that when I actually went to retrieve the wise statements of Jesus, they would be encased in these uh, accounts that allegedly um, uh, argued that these things actually occurred. Like there was a historical timeline. These aren't just Proverbs. These aren't just the wise statements of Jesus. They actually were included in accounts as though they happened in chronological order, as though the people writing them saw these things occur. Well, that was of interest to me. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so I really didn't enter it with the, I wasn't trying to 
prove something or disprove something. Mm -hmm. I was just looking to collect the wisdom statements of Jesus, um, just to throw them in my pocket the way I had thrown in the pocket the other wisdom statements of ancients, um, never thinking there was anything more to it. But as I kind of drilled down into the accounts, I realized that uh, there were some attributes of the accounts right away that, that bothered me, that um, seemed like uh, if you were going to lie about this, they would be um, simpler in some ways. Uh, maybe they would, um, there, there were differences between the accounts that intrigued me because uh, I saw those uh, very often in uh, when you have multiple eyewitness accounts. No one ever agrees on anything. So this happens all the time, even today. So when I saw that the accounts were, had not been polished out, the, the kind of warts and bumps and pimples of the accounts had not been removed. They had been left in place. The kinds of things that would cause people today to say, see, this is why you can't trust them. Well, these clearly could have been worked out by the myth writers in the first two centuries, but they weren't. Uh, that stuff intrigued me enough to be able to, to want to test them. And that's what we, uh, what I ended up doing, given the template that is used to test eyewitnesses in trial. There's a template. I describe it in a book I wrote called Cold Case Christianity. That Really, that template is the template that I used with the Gospels. And I, and I get it. It's interesting to me that um, we have this account. We, there's, a, there's more than enough evidential, reasonable, rational reason to believe what has been written about Jesus. But there's also enough reason for people to reject it. Isn't that interesting? In other words, yeah. God could have easily overwhelmed us in such a way that everyone is just born with this overwhelming knowledge of, of God. But that would be to, to create, in essence, spiritual robots, right? That simply mm -hmm. responded yeah. to the way they had been hardwired. And I don't think that God's interested in that. He's a gentleman in the sense that he's not gonna twist your arm. Um, he's going to leave it. Is there's more than enough reason to believe it's true? Mm -hmm. But if your will is such that you don't want it to be true, you'll find reasons not to believe it's true. And I think that that's exactly the way it's supposed to be, according to God, because He's allowing us the freedom to make conscious choices. Because let's let's face it: if you cannot consciously choose something of your own will. It cannot be said to be genuine. So I, I, I can wire it in so that you, you love God automatically. You can't do anything but love God. But then it's not really love. It's just the automatic wiring of who you are. Love has to be chosen freely in order for it to be truly called love. And so I think if God is desiring creatures that truly love him, he's going to have to allow you the ability to hate him. And that's what God has done. And so I can offer this evidence to people, but they may, uh, as a matter of pure will, find reason not to believe it's true. And that, that's fine. Uh, I, I think it needs to be that way. I cannot say, I never say to people, well, I can prove to you this is true. What I say generally, generally is that I can give you the reasons why I think that, that, that this is a reasonable inference from the evidence. Mm -hmm. And you may not find it to be a reasonable inference from the evidence. That's okay. Uh, I didn't find it to be a reasonable, I wouldn't really didn't look at the evidence for many years, but I didn't even think it was worth looking at for 35 years. So I'm pretty patient with people who are opposed to the Christian worldview. Yeah, that's good. And the part you were saying on, um, they're kind of like scared on like really looking to find out if like God really is true. Cause I know so many people that are like that is 
they say they're atheists, but they're more like mad at God. Like deep down inside, that's what they're really more. And well, well there are there's a number of reasons why somebody could reject a claim, right? We talk about that yeah. in the book. Yeah. You, you you could reject the claim because you have rational uh, hesitancy. You, you think that hey, this evidence is not strong enough for me to embrace this claim. You could reject a claim because you have emotional resistance, not rational, but emotional. You encountered somebody who's a Christian who you thought was disgusting and you thought if that's what this is about. I have no interest in that. Well, that's not about the evidence for Christian. That's about your emotional response to people. That's a different reason to reject it. You might have a volitional, not a, not rational, not emotional, but a volitional rejection. And you just don't want it to be true. But, but I, I think I'm always hesitant to talk about that because as an atheist, I found it extremely offensive that Christians thought the only reason why I was rejecting the claim was because I had some emotional or volitional response to it. I would have argued, no, it's just not reasonable. Okay, it's not reasonable given the evidence. Now, even though I really had not yet examined the evidence, and the reason why I would say that is because I would have said any claim that there's anything outside of space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry is unreasonable. Because my view as an atheist is I was a philosophical naturalist. The only thing that exists were these, those um, uh, aspects of the physical world that could be impacted on uh, by physics and chemistry. Nothing else really existed for me. So when you said, hey, I've got this book, a historical account of a man named Jesus, but it includes something supernatural, I'm out. That's unreasonable because I had a presuppositional bias against anything extra natural, even though as an atheist, I believe the entire universe leapt into existence, all space, time, and matter. This is called Big Bang Cosmology. Mm-hmm. leapt into existence. We're in a universe that has a beginning, and the science demonstrates this, and that that universe that has a beginning has a cause outside of space, time, and matter. Trust me, Big Bang cosmology leads you in this direction. But how yeah. could that be? I'm looking for a cause outside. It's really super powerful, outside of space, time, and matter. You're dangerously close to the notion about God. And I was willing to accept that kind of... Um, undefined cause of the universe, right? Because that undefined cause of the universe makes no demands on me personally. So it's very easy to accept that kind of cause. But if there's a cause like that, why would I doubt the supernatural, the extra natural descriptions in the New Testament? Because let's face it, if you can create the universe out of nothing, walking on water is a small banana kind of miracle. So I think you have, if the door is open for one, it ought to be open for the other. Yeah, that's good. And like, since you were doing this, like, as a homicide detective, I was kind of interested on, like, how did you do it really with the tools and skills that you had towards, like, the Gospels and the resurrection of Jesus? Like, what, like, how did you really do that? Well, I, I did skill set. Right. Yeah. Well, a lot of this is not about, I mean, I think after the fact, it's easy to kind of, I mean, you have this unusual approach. And it wasn't like I said, oh, I'll just take this unusual approach and I'll write a book about it. I didn't write a book for the next uh, 12 years. I mean, I just used that, what, I, what skills I had. I mean, I want to suggest this. If, if you are an engineer and you're examining Christianity for the first time, there's probably something about your engineering background as a puzzler, as a systems, you know, kind of a puzzler that you probably will employ as you look at the evidence for God's existence, as you look at the evidence for the New Testament, 
you're not going to be able to help yourself because this is your discipline. This is how kind of how you've been trained to think. Well, the same thing happens for detectives, right? It's not like we're saying, oh, what kind of gimmick can I use here that I could then later write a book about? I mean, it doesn't work that, that way. This is how you work through ideas and work through claims to determine if they're true. And now, as, now the question then becomes, well, is, is a detective approach even, look, I'm working cases for which there are typically no living, uh, the, the eyewitnesses are often dead. And sometimes the report writers are dead. So I've got to look at a report that was written 35 years ago, and I don't have access to the witness or to the report writer. How do I determine if anything is true? Well, mm -hmm. in court, we have four things that we look at when we look at eyewitness reliability. One, was the person really there, and then can they demonstrate they were really there? Two, can we corroborate them in some way? And my cases are old enough where I don't have cell phone technology that can help me with um, a video. This is all pre-video uh, generation for the most part, believe it or not. It's hard to imagine now. So uh, if I'm going to have corroborative evidence, it's going to be what I call touch point corroborative evidence. It's not going to be a videotape. Tape. I even said tape. Like there's actually <laughs> tape anymore. So the point is there's not going to be a video. Uh, third thing, uh, have they changed their story? Have they been honest and accurate or do they keep on flipping their story over time? And fourth thing, do they have a reason to lie to me, a bias? The, are they motivated by sex, money, or power to say something they shouldn't say that's not even true? Well, that's the approach I take when I'm um, evaluating witnesses. Why? Because that is the approach that is taken in jury instructions for jurors. When jurors are assessing eyewitnesses on, on the stand, they are allowed to ask questions, or in their mind anyway, to assess the witness in those four categories. So I said, could we apply those four categories of eyewitness reliability to the Gospels? And as I did that, I found them compelling. Um, they're written early enough to have been written by eyewitnesses. By the way, if you want to lie about Jesus, here's how you do that. You wait until everyone's dead. Then you can say anything you want. But if you're writing within the lifetime of eyewitnesses, that's trickier. Does not mean it's true, but it's the first step in reliability. Two, um, they can be corroborated with touchpoint evidence, either internal and external. I cover a lot of that in the book. And three, have they changed their story over time? I think you can trace the progression of the Jesus story through the centuries by way of the church fathers, by way of other people who are writing about Jesus. And you will see that the resurrection claim is incredibly early, doesn't change. And that's the big claim. Look, if, if nothing else happened, that you could confirm, except for the resurrection. If that's a claim that is early and never changes over time, that's the big claim about Jesus. That makes him different than any other ancient sage. You will find, as you trace the story of Jesus through the students of the eyewitnesses and the students of the students of the eyewitnesses and the students of the students of the students of the eyewitnesses, that the story of Jesus does not change. Finally, do they have any reason to lie? Remember, all lies are predicated on three motives. One is money, two is sex, and three is the big one, which encompasses a lot, which is the pursuit of power. What in the world did the disciples hope to gain from this lie? They didn't gain anything from money, they didn't gain anything with sex, and they didn't even gain anything with power, which some people have suggested, right? Like, hey, maybe now you're the leader of a religious movement. Really? So Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, led a movement of sorts. He was, he was influential enough as a leader and had the power to draw papers against Christians to have them executed. 
So you're telling me he's going to jump out of a larger group with more power to jump into a minor group that's never going to have that power in his lifetime and get beaten and tortured and imprisoned his entire life until he finally dies in custody. Wow, that was a smart move, right? I don't think you can argue that sex, money, or power motivated a lie. And those are the only three things that ever motivate a lie. If you think there's a fourth, knock yourself out. There isn't. I learned that before I ever became a Christian. What causes people to kill people are the same three things. What causes you to commit any crime? Same three motives. Now, it turns out those three motives were actually listed in 1 John. I just didn't know it because I'd never read 1 John. I love the fact that the New Testament describes our motives, describes the world the way it really is. And that's one of the things I use to test these eyewitnesses. Those four categories, these, these gospels do pass the test. Oh yeah, that's good. And what I was really curious about was how these detectives, like homicide cases, mm -hmm. how it had to have been a lot harder, like deciding if this like was the resurrection of Jesus Christ is if that really was true because had been a little difficult because that happened thousands of years ago compared to like um, figuring right. out a case that happened like most like 20 or 30 years ago so that probably had been a lot harder for you so well, it, it is and I think people have argued that now you know Trent they've said hey how can you even apply the same thinking well I get that uh, but all of history is an examination of what you think occurred in the past. And I will say this, just as an object, kind of a, as a thought experiment, um, I think what motivates people to skepticism on this is not necessarily a fair assessment of the manuscript evidence or even a fair approach um, to, um, um, uh, you know, to uh, history. Mm -hmm. Here's why I say that. Um, if, if Jesus, if the story of Jesus was simply a matter of an ancient sage who preached some messages, like Sermon on the Mount, mm -hmm. but never worked any miracle, never rose from the grave, never walked on water, never fed 5,000, all that stuff is not in the story. The story is only that Jesus preached nice messages or powerful messages. Do you think anyone would doubt, given the manuscript evidence we have, the historicity or the reliability of the statements made by Jesus. I don't think you'll find any ancient sage has been as well documented historically as Jesus. If all of the miracle accounts were missing, they're just out, they're not part of the story. Jesus is not this anything other than an ancient sage. Every historical scholar would be going, yeah, that, this is the best attested ancient sage in all of history. So what's the problem? The problem is that that same account includes supernatural. This is a bias about the supernatural that for a lot of people is like, okay, I can't. Yeah, you're right. That, that, that level of historical agreement, that level of manuscript evidence would certainly make any other kind of story incredibly reliable. But, you know, there's these miracles. Well, that's a you problem. That's not a, a manuscript problem. That's yeah. you thinking that there's nothing outside of the physical realm. Look, we got good reason to believe, for example, that the mind, the immaterial mind, is different than your material brain. Mm. And I've written about this in a That's book called good. God's Crime Scene. So there are already discussions about whether or not matter in the material world is all that really is. 
So I don't know why we're so hesitant to, 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 to think that there may be something outside of what can be impacted by physics and chemistry outside of space, time, and matter. And you already know there must be because whatever that is outside of the universe that caused the universe to come into existence has to be outside of space, time, and matter. So I think that we ought to at least be open to the possibility, the actual reasonable inference from the manuscript evidence that we ought not be uh, so biased against the supernatural that we close our minds to the notion that any claim of the supernatural on the part of Jesus could be uh, true. In fact, I think that, that if we were to accept the, the, the claims of the New Testament uh, as fairly as we would as if there were no supernatural elements, we would find these to be incredibly compelling. Yeah, that's good. I really like that. And actually, Cold Case Christianity book, I actually have it right here. Oh, there you go. It's there. Yeah, and I just wanted to promote this at the end, but during this conversation, how you bring it up, I just wanted to give a shout out to this book, how I highly recommend it to people because it was definitely pretty life-changing. Like I've been, I've been a Christian for a while, but it was about like last year when I read it and it's just a total perspective has changed. So just really recommend that book to people. And actually, I heard of that book when you were on God's Not Dead too, when you brought that up. Yeah. And Really well, look, a lot of the reasons why we do these books is we know that they'll be either help to people who are searching for truth, but not everyone's open to the truth. So I get that. But also they're, they're, they're helpful for those of us who um, maybe got here a different way. Maybe we got here because we were raised this way. Or we, we, we believed what our parents told us. We didn't even challenge it. Or we had some experience that we thought at the time might indicate that, that Christianity is true, but now we've had a lot of experiences that we kind of question now whether Christianity is true, right? You might get to the truth in a way that does not give you confidence that it's true. That's really interesting, right? That we might get to a place by accident, not to reason ourselves to this position, but just to find ourselves there. And then, we, then of course, the first time you encounter something that seems to challenge you, you struggle with it because you didn't get here uh, through some process of evidential reasoning. You just happen to be born into it. Well, I think there's some value for those of us who might find ourselves in that position to know whether or not this is true. So I think we're doing two things here, right? I mean, we're trying to, to help those who are on the fence and maybe um, are looking honestly. They aren't rigidly opposed. They are open to where the evidence may lead where they're definitely trying to help them. But at the same time, you and I, when we explain what's true about Christianity, we can strengthen those who got here accidentally. So I think that's part of what we do. That's good. And also bringing up about that book is, it was in chapter 13, you brought up how were the gospel writers accurate and how like non-Christians, they can look at the Bible and they will have a hard time believing it because it's not like an average book. Cause like an average book is the writer is this person, like just this person, but the Bible is written by thousands of different people from different like ages, different backgrounds. And I wanted to see how you can really describe how the Bible is accurate, like how to prove somebody, how, the Bible is accurate by this, or it's because of this. 
Yeah, well, a lot of this is about us. I mean, I'm writing another book right now called Person of Interest, where I talk about how you could actually make a case for Jesus without any New Testament at all, just based on the course of history that led up to Jesus and that followed Jesus. Um, so the, the impact that Jesus has had on culture has been so robust that it's hard to erase Jesus from the collective histories of anyone on the planet right now, given the kind of influence and, and, and spread of the gospel. But my point here is this. Um, you can find out, we have to determine, has this story, is it accurate? Has it changed over time is really the issue. Oh, yeah. Right, because I can corroborate some of these internally and externally. I could use architecture. I could use archaeology. I could use um, the history of cultures. I could use uh, internal evidence of linguistics, of the way that the authors cite certain geographies or cite certain cities or cite certain names of people groups that would only be known to somebody who's actually writing in the first century in the area in which the events in the New Testament actually occurred. We could talk about all that. But the point I'm trying to make here is, at some point, the question becomes, how do we know if the story of Jesus changed over time? And that's a big question, right? Because we kind of have a sense that there might be the legend of Jesus that developed over time. And if that's the case, you can't trust anything that's in the New Testament because it's including legendary elements that have been corrupted over time. But if you go back to the earliest records of those who sat at the feet of the eyewitnesses, you will see that every miraculous element of the Jesus story occurs early. Let's just go forget about it. The, the most important uh, miraculous element is the resurrection. And the, one of the earliest documents in the New Testament, by anyone's um, um, examination, including skeptics like Bart Ehrman, are the early letters of Paul, especially to the Corinthian church, sometime in the mid-50s, early to the mid-50s. And you will see that the high Christology, that the fact that Jesus rose from the grave, is there in the earliest century, in the earliest writings of Christendom. It's not as though, okay, well, this, this, this miraculous stuff that appears later in history, he was a simple preaching rabbi. He didn't do anything supernatural. He was just a preaching rabbi. And as the legend grew before it became the religion of the empire, eventually the simple rabbi named Jesus became the Christ of Christianity. There's no evidence for this in the manuscripts at all. Even in the manuscripts of those that are extra-biblical manuscripts, not even about the, the New Testament. I'm talking about the writings of the earliest leaders of the Christian church. You will see that this notion that Jesus was born of a virgin, worked miracles, and rose from the grave, that's the big ones. That's the stuff that makes everyone pause. That stuff's been in there from the earliest years. That's not been added over time. You, the Jesus you're encountering on the pages of the New Testament today is the same as the earliest Jesus described to the earliest believers. There's no change in the story of Jesus. Wow, that's good. And also, it was a, so this is about my last question here. Sure. And it was more of a, like in the beginning that I wanted to ask, but is when you were going through this, when was it that you were like, wow, it, is true like what point did it happen like going all through that journey of the gospels of the resurrection of jesus while you were trying to figure it all out and studying it when was it when you recognized wow it really is true like wow 
this really is something that is life changing? Like when exactly was that? Well, I'm gonna, I've, I've been asked this by others. I'm, I'll try to, to explain this um, maybe in a more detailed way here. Um, you know, I'm the kind of person who will make sure I delay inferences until the entire, uh, trust the process. You hear that all the time, right? In football, you hear that all the time in yeah. sports, right? Yeah. You got this process, just trust the process, trust the process. The same thing is really true for um, detective work, right? You might have an inclination, but man, I've been wrong. So I just know to trust the process. So I didn't jump in early. Even if, if, if the first of the four legs we talked about in terms of reliability, if I would have established the first leg and it passes the test, well, you might be inclined to jump in right there. No, don't jump in there. You don't need to. Well, first of all, why would I jump in anyway? I'm not like inclined toward Christian belief. I wasn't at the time. At 35, had a great life. Everything's going well. I didn't have a crisis I was trying to solve quickly. This was interested in this ancient sage named Jesus. Okay. There's no rush to this. So I didn't jump in. So I just trusted the process. And you trust the process all the way through working through. So that means when you work in a cumulative case that is really strongest, once all the pieces are in place, well, then you have to trust the process and not jump in or make an inference into that's really hard in most investigations because you got to do that whole thing with each candidate each suspect in your investigation you just can't jump out unless there's something disqualifies them then you can jump out but otherwise you're you're kind of like okay that case is so for him but boy it's a lot stronger for him it's a lot stronger for her and suddenly you have a suspect so you have to trust the process and that's what we had to do with this i mean i just thought well okay, i was just mildly interested at first and as each piece of the case came together, I became, well, this is actually worth my time now. Mm. But I also knew I had been wrong. I had just been wrong not long before this on a major case I was working at work where I didn't trust. I wasn't, I was too eager. I jumped in too soon. So I just knew to be patient. So I went through all this process. I had all four legs that I thought would look pretty good. And even then I asked my wife, I said, I just don't know even if this was true, why would a good God do it this way? Like, why would he ever have to die on a cross to begin with? Yeah. You could make a case for this death on the cross, and it might be really good, but it seems stupid. Like, why would you do yeah. it this way? So I didn't understand the gospel, even though I had been studying the gospels. And that's where the letters of Paul were helpful right? Because I have been so focused on just the historicity of the accounts that I wasn't even listening to what the theological implications were from the words of Jesus. It was clear in the gospel, but I had not been paying attention to that. Mm -hmm. But when you get to the letters, well, now you don't have any historical events. It's just about the implications of those events. And now you really can kind of focus. And as I realized that, that and I say this all the time, you can... Um, Learn a lot about Jesus and the Gospels, and that'll give you belief that it's true. But until you start to pay attention to what the Gospels in the, in the New, Letter, New Testament letters say about you, not about Jesus, about you, well, that's when you realize you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Yeah. And that's really what makes the difference. So I think I did not for sure commit to any decision on this until I had not only done all that checking down the list on the Gospels, but also understood why, G why God would have to do it this way. And does that make any sense at all? And then, of course, then once you realize that, you're like, well, you'd be a fool if, you, if these things check the box for you uh, in terms of your assessment of the evidence. Why, why would you stay out?
Uh, you would now look. I, I often say that I don't. I'm not a Christian because it's something that is. I like. I oh, I really needed this to fix a problem. I really needed this because this works. It makes my life easier. This makes sense of my life. I had a great life. There's. I had no need for any of this in my mind. Of course, I had a great need, spiritual need for this, but I didn't know. Any, didn't care about any of that. I, I'm not Christian because it's true. And I talked about this in the movie. You're stuck with it. There's lots of days when I would rather it not be true. I mean, don't you feel that way sometimes? Yeah. yeah. Don't we all feel that way as Christians sometimes? Like, hey, I could, I could do this thing over here and not even feel bad about it. If Christianity wasn't true, <laughs> but yeah. sadly it is, or luckily it is. Yeah, like us. And so therefore, um, I'm in. But it does place... Um, restrictions and demands and obligations on me that there are many days that I wish it didn't place on me. Um, but at the same time, that does not going to make it untrue. So I have to follow where the truth is. And so that's why I'm here. I'm a Christian because it's true. Yeah, that's good. I really like that. And also I really liked how you, when you're talking about in the middle, how, like, why did God have to like send his son Jesus to like die like as a resurrection like why did there have right. to be a resurrection of it and that really like points out to me a lot I think of that a lot and also that and is God like an evil God for doing that because that's what I thought at first when I was Christian like God doing this is he an evil God like especially like all the sin in the world and yeah I, I um, was on your YouTube channel like, a couple months ago and I saw one of your YouTube clips that is God evil. And I really watched that. And I actually sent that to a couple of my friends that weren't Christians. And what I really liked about that is really demonstrating broke down a lot of things for them. And they're still processing a lot yeah. of it. And now they're telling me, like during this like time we're going through this pandemic, like some of my friends, family members have died. And that's when they're really questioning, okay, sure. So you're telling me all about this, about how God is not evil, but like this is showing more proof of real like is he really not an evil God? And that's when I showed them your video and I really um, had a question to ask you is, especially if people are watching right now, like, okay, I get what you're saying. I'm hearing you out, mm -hmm. but how can I really explain more? How can I really find out more from this? Like, like on people asking, like people are saying that, like how exactly is this? Like break it down a little more. Sure. Sure. Well, then that's a good place to end then. Cause I, yeah. I'll say this to you that, if there's a, a unique offer that's made in the New Testament that is probably was seemed foreign to the first Jews who thought about this or were encountering this idea, because if you look through the entire Old Testament, you have a hard time making a case that, that we are to be in heaven, reunited with God, that we have a life beyond the grave. This idea that we take for granted as Christians, that our life is not limited to the 90 years we live on earth. For the most part, you'd have a hard time making a case for that 
uh, from the Old Testament. That case is made most robustly from the New Testament, where Jesus is described as the firstborn of all creation. Not to say that he's a created being that was just happened to be born first before, but no, it's that he rises from the grave. His resurrection, read Colossians chapter 1, starting verse 15, you'll see it's that his resurrection occurs prior to any other, the promise of the New Testament, the claim of the New Testament is that you are more than a material being, that you will live for eternity with God, and that whatever evil you experience in this temporal life is nothing compared to eternity with God. You're not a line segment from birth to death. You're a ray that starts at birth, goes through the point we call death, and off into eternity, because we'll go the other way for what you're showing you on the opposite side, birth through death and off into eternity, okay? Mm -hmm. yeah. That claim is promised by the resurrection. Jesus rises from the grave, and Paul says, if that's not true, you have no hope for your own eternity as resurrected beings. But if it is true, you should know that like Jesus, you will also have a life beyond the grave. That is the promise of the New Testament. And how you will be reconciled to that, when, when God is so powerful that he can create all space, time, and matter from nothing, he's also, that, he has that kind of power, all the power. That means he has the power to eliminate moral imperfection. That means that God is not good. God is morally perfect. To be with a morally perfect God, when we are morally imperfect, we have to take an offer that we cannot do for ourselves. So God does not sacrifice one human, Jesus, so that all of us can be saved. No, no. God comes to earth. The judge comes off the judgment seat behind the, you're in court. Judge comes down and says, you know what? I'm going to pay the penalty that you deserve to pay. That's what he does. He comes down to earth as Jesus accepts the penalty for our sin, promises us eternity with God, and then demonstrates that it is true by rising from the grave. That is the way he is the firstborn. He is the first to rise from the grave for eternity, never to die again. Remember Lazarus, the others that he rose from the grave, that he actually resurrected. Those are not resurrections. Those are resuscitations. Those people eventually died. But Jesus rises from the grave forever and he is the firstborn in that sense. And we are promised to follow him. So it's a promise of eternity. And if you don't think that makes a difference in terms of struggle in a pandemic year, where you think, oh, gosh, my, my grandfather died at 80. He could have lived to 90 maybe, but he died at 70. He could have lived to 80, whatever it is. My loved ones died when they could be here with me. Okay, if they're believers, well, even if they're not, we are all eternal creatures. The only question is, where will we spend eternity after we die. And if you think you've suffered in this life, remember, it's only 90 years. Don't overestimate 90 years compared to a thousand years in eternity. 90 years is pretty short. Compared to a million years in eternity, 90 years is even shorter. Compared to 10 million years in eternity, 90 years is a millisecond. So remember that what we live here on this life, if Christianity is true, pales in comparison to the eternity we'll spend with God in which there will no be there won't be any tears. There won't be any pain. Yeah. There won't be any suffering. That's the promise of the New Testament. You have a hard time finding that promise in the Old Testament, although it was foreshadowed. Mm -hmm. It's clear in the New Testament. That's the promise.
That's the way in which Jesus is the firstborn, and that is the promise of the resurrection. So uh, again, what is it, what, could God have some good reason to allow you the difficulties that you're experiencing in the first 90 years, given that you're going to have eternity of bliss with God? I think he's trying to develop something in us that is only developable, only able for us to experience if we understand the role that suffering plays in the character development, suffering plays in our, our sanctification and how we become holy people. Oh, yeah, I really like that. And that was really definitely a good finisher. That definitely answered a lot of questions I've had and a lot of questions my friends had as well. So I, I really like that and learned a lot from that. And so after finishing that, I just want to say thank you so much for yeah, thanks coming for on here. I it appreciate was really it, Trent. Great privilege and definitely starting off the new year with that. So okay, thank great. Thanks, Trent. I appreciate it.